Two and a Half Admins, episode 132. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your usual Clara plug is ZFS optimization success stories. Yeah, this is an article I put together talking about some of the interesting ZFS tuning and performance enhancements that we've done lately and how it's made a big difference for some companies. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And a huge thing that's happened over the last couple of weeks is Twitter announcing that if you want to keep using SMS two-factor authentication, you're going to have to subscribe to Twitter Blue, which requires you to pay. So they're paywalling SMS 2FA, which on the one hand is probably a good thing because SMS 2FA is terrible, but then it's better than no 2FA, isn't it? It is certainly better than no 2FA. Just everything about this announcement is just clown shoes. (laughs) It would make perfect sense to say we are sunsetting SMS 2FA because it's inherently insecure and uh, you can and should do better. That would make perfect sense. No notes. But instead, what Musk, and I'm just going to go ahead and lay it right at his feet, what Musk is saying is if you want to keep using SMS 2FA, you have to give me $8 a month for Twitter Blue. So you have the option of paying Elon Musk every month in order to have insecure (laughs) 2FA. Or you could just, for free, have real 2FA that doesn't have the possibility of, you know, SIM jacking being used to get a 'er ne'er-do-well into your account anyway. It just, it's ridiculous. It is another thing that makes no sense coming out of Musk & Co. I think it makes perfect sense if you understand the thing behind it. Sending SMSs costs money. I don't think that's even the thing behind it. I think it is. I'm sure that Elon saw a big bill every month for the amount of SMSs they send for 2FA and was like, why are we giving this away for free? Make it a pay-only feature. I'm sure that doesn't hurt. Which is a great reason also for, like you said, to just say, we're getting rid of it. Yeah, exactly. And use a real authenticator. And that's the thing. I think if Elon just wanted to get rid of that bill, then he could very easily have just said, this is insecure, so we're canceling it. And... Voila, the costs have been cut. I don't think it was about primarily cutting the cost of sending the text messages. I think it's about Elon still just desperately trying to find some way, any way, to get more people to sign up for Twitter Blue. Yeah. If we were looking at this sanely, I would be looking at something more like if you have Twitter Blue and you're going to have the verified tag, you have to have 2FA so that The tweets that have the verified sign are actually not easy to hijack and so on. But that's not at all what they're doing. It's just them, like you said, trying to push more people into Twitter blue. And it seems like a really odd option. Like, if it wasn't for the fact that the SMSs cost money, I'd almost say they want to go the other way if they're trying to force people. It's like, oh, if you want the good 2FA, Mm -hmm. you have to be a subscriber. (laughs) But I'm glad they're not doing that because I'd rather have the option of good 2FA without having to subscribe. And considering it doesn't cost them anything. The thing is, though, that good 2FA requires effort on the part of the user, whereas to receive an SMS, all you need is a phone, and most people are using Twitter on their phone anyway. Right, but all the other 2FA is about (sighs) the same. Like, most of mine is when you go to log in, a prompt pops up on your phone, and you just hit approve. Like, it's usually easier than having to copy six digits out of the text message and put them in the app. Yeah, if you're using something like Duo, that's the absolute easiest, because like Alan was saying, you get a push notification to your phone, you say OK on your phone, and you're just done. Most of my 2FA, unfortunately, is not Duo. It's the the more basic type that you get out of Google Authenticator or, you know, Authy or what have you. Yeah, TOTP, where you do have to type in the six digits just as you would if you were doing SMS 2FA. 
but it's still honestly a huge improvement because you can open up your Authenticator app and get your six digits anytime you want, and they're always right there. There is no wait to get them delivered. Whereas if you do SMS 2FA, then you're hoping that the service that sends the SMS is doing so on a timely basis, which it may or may not, that the SMS is getting delivered on a timely basis, which it may or may not, you know, all these things. You're sitting there waiting for a text message to come in, and maybe it comes in instantly, but in my experience, frequently, it does not come in instantly. And in some cases, it may take a minute or two or even not show up at all. Well, even like when the latency is only like 15 seconds, it's still 15 seconds of me being like, I'm trying to log in here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'd rather, yeah, just open up an app and type in the number that's there. And it also means you have this tighter threshold for when the number changes and a lot, it's just better in every way. And so I'm glad they're not hiding the good version behind the subscription, but it is quite clowny to decide to keep offering SMS, even though it's terrible, but only if you pay. And I don't know. I just felt like it seemed like they were just trying to be like, we're only going to offer to people that are paying us because it costs money to send the SMSs. But I agree that it seems more like just a push to try to get more subscribers. And I don't think this is going to convince anybody, though. I would hope. Certainly not many people. I hesitate to even say it on air. It would have made more sense just be like, if you want 2FA, you have to give me the money. And it, when I first saw the announcement, that's what I assumed it was. And I kept reading it. I'm like, oh, no, wait, my 2FA, you know, using an authenticator app still works fine. It's if I want to do the crappy, insecure thing that anybody who simjacked me, you know, would just instantly own. That's the thing that you would want me to give you money every month if I want to do that. And just uh, uh, give me money every month if you want something that sucks. That honestly, that kind of seems to sum up exactly what Elon has been doing with Twitter. If you want something that sucks, give me money every month. Did I understand this right? That if you are using SMS 2FA, you don't turn it off or move to proper 2FA, you don't subscribe to Twitter Blue, then you just won't be able to log in after the deadline. The announcement did say that. I would like to believe they figure out something better by the time the deadline comes up, like automatically just turning it off. I mean, that wouldn't be a difficult logic check to run. Yeah, although it does raise the possibility of a bunch of accounts getting hijacked as soon as the 2FA goes away. It does either way. Well, if they lock the account out and you just can't log in, then it's maybe slightly better. Is it? Because then how do you get access to it again? How do you prove it was yours? Well, my point is that if it's an abandoned account, it means nobody can get it, as opposed to I can buy up the domain that was used for the email address that expired, and now I I have the email and I can reset the password and, and take over, you know, abandoned account or something. But I don't know that that's going to be something that's going to happen a lot. But they're just suddenly turning it off when the user hasn't isn't around could lead to even more shenanigans. But if, I guess if you're actually using it and they change the text message to be like, hey, this isn't going to work anymore or something, then maybe you'll notice. But whether they turn it off or not, if there is any way to regain control of your account, then it's the same as if they just turned it off. Because if you haven't set up 2FA, and then they're like, okay, here's your path to set up the 2FA that you never set up now. Well, they can't make you 2FA to set up the new 2FA, so it still just boils down to they removed 2FA from the account. Now it's on you to do something about it one way or the other. I suppose you couldn't even log in and pay for it because you can't log in. Yeah, and 30 days seems like an awfully short horizon for that hard of a cutoff. You know, it'll be fine. He's just going to unplug another rack full of servers and somehow that'll fix the problem. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. LastPass says employees' home computer was hacked and corporate vault taken. So yeah, in this latest update on the LastPass saga, they have more information about kind of how this happened. And after the initial intrusion that LastPass thought had ended on August 12th, they've now found that the uh, persistent threat actor was actively engaged in a second or new series of reconnaissance, enumeration, and exfiltration activities starting on August 12th when they finally thought they locked him out of their network through to August 26th. In the process of that, they were able to steal valid credentials for a senior developer by compromising their home machine. And then with that, access content in LastPass's data vault, among other things, that vault gave access to shared cloud storage environments that contained the encryption keys for customer vault backups that were stored in S3 buckets, allowing them to get more access and more data out of it. So the other interesting thing here is that the uh, the specific vector that got the DevOps person's home PC compromised was their Plex server. And we don't know if there is any actual connection, but Plex had its own network intrusion that it reported on August 24th in the midst of this window. I really can't stress enough, we don't know if there is anything to do with those two things, and they may not be connected at all. But it's difficult to not imagine that this advanced persistent threat that LastPass just absolutely cannot get out of their network kind of drive by Plex and their single-minded determination to get in, which that kind of thing honestly does fit with my personal experience with APTs. You get the right kind of advanced persistent threat and just they get the bit in their teeth and nothing's stopping them. They're going to get in. They know what the target is and they just don't give up. Yeah, so Plex was clear to say that they haven't actually heard anything directly from LastPass and they've got fixes for all the vulnerabilities that have ever been reported to them and that things are better now and that if the exploit used to compromise the LastPass DevOps person's computer is not one that's already been fixed in Plex, they would really like LastPass to tell them what they know about it (laughs) because they're not aware of any, but it could just be that the version of Plex running on the developer's machine was well out of date. A key thing I want to make clear here is that this wasn't compromised because there was a Plex somewhere on his network and they got in that way. It was remote code execution in Plex that let them run a key logger on the machine. And that apparently was the machine that this person does their work at. And they were able to get the master password for the employee's LastPass vault and also somehow get in there right after the employee authenticated with MFA. And that raised some questions for me is how does that MFA work 
if I have your password and I can tailgate you through the MFA. Like, sure, I'm I'm in your computer, and that's you know already a, a big thing. But what is the MFA providing if all I need is your password and to be on your computer when you authenticate with MFA? Well, if it's duo style where you've got to, you know, push notification MFA, then it's not hard at all. If you're on that person's computer watching what they're doing, you wait for them to log in and trigger the MFA and then you log in immediately after them and they just get two MFA push notifications in a row and they think, ah, this damn thing's being glitchy, but they probably just tap yes to both of them and you're in. Yeah, that could happen. It's not clear that that's what actually happened here, although I'm not sure how the 2FA part of LastPass is supposed to work anyway. Because if it's your vault is encrypted with your master password, where does the 2FA part come in? They have multiple options available for that. Right. And I know part of it is they have like a extension key or something on their side that they mix in with your master password and control access to that. Now, all I really know is there are multiple MFA mechanisms available. I'm not personally a LastPass user, but when I worked with a client that uh, mandated LastPass, they had Okta integration, so it, it was Okta MFA. But that's that's all pretty pluggable. The other thing that I found interesting was if you drill down to LastPass's own report on this, they mention that they're taking steps to help the employee secure their home PC with the with the Plex server on it, and it's a little odd, like first that they're just kind of okay with this DevOps person accessing incredibly sensitive corporate information on just a random home PC with other stuff on it, like, you know, Plex and God only knows what else. Like, I don't know, maybe this is a 100% remote work person, but even so, given the level of assets that they're managing, they really ought to have a dedicated computer for that that is not for whatever else they feel like doing, but is just for work. There's work from home, but there's also like, this is security sensitive. You have to use this work-managed laptop where we enforce the security policy on it and you can't install random things like Plex. Mm -hmm. But also, when you get hit with an APT, you don't secure the machine. You bury it in concrete and get a new one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. The whole thing is, is it feels odd. Well, it also raised some questions, you know, they're talking about, so this DevOps person was apparently one of only four employees who has access to the corporate vault. Okay, but if it can be done by so few people, why does it ever need to be anybody? Or why doesn't it need like any two of them to do this, not just any of them can do this from home? And if it's so sensitive that only four people have access to it, maybe one of those people shouldn't be the person that's just like messing with it on their everything machine from home while they watch movies on Plex or whatever. Just again, oh, that really should have been dedicated infrastructure for accessing something that sensitive. And let's be clear here. I certainly don't have access to anything as technically sensitive as like all of LastPass's data. That's a staggering value right there. Yeah, and like I'm picturing like why isn't there like a bastion host I'm going through and then going to this clean room-ish machine and that's where I do anything that involves touching this vault that only four people are supposed to have access to and like literally every step ever taken on this machine is recorded and audited. Not... I did it from my home machine while watching something on Plex or whatever. 
But yeah, my point was they're saying that only one of only four people had access to this, and uh, they said once in possession of the decrypted vault, the threat actor exported the entries, including the decryption keys needed to access the AWS S3 LastPass production backups, uh, other cloud-based uh, storage resources, and some related critical database backups. So they have a bunch of data, and they encrypted it and put it in S3, but they were able to get the decryption keys this way, but. What was that data? And was that data also, was each user's data still encrypted with their thing? And if not, that's not what LastPass promises is supposed to happen. And they say, uh, for the first time, this update says, contrary to their previous assertions, the attacker has obtained customer vault data containing both the encrypted and plain text data. So the plain text being the website URL and a bunch of that stuff. And then the encrypted stuff with the username, password, secure notes, and the form fill data, which is encrypted with your master password. And that also explains how the threat actor was able to decrypt their backups and get access to the plain text stuff like website URLs and so on. As easy as it is to say, well, nothing of value was lost because everything's still encrypted with the customer's master passwords and you know, yada, 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 yada. I promise you a lot of those master passwords were not even close to good enough. Right. I have seen LastPass audits at corporations that use LastPass, when you audit all your own employees that have accounts under your own, and uh, there are tools to check for the password strength that they've used. And it's gotten to the point that I routinely expect to see like 80% of employees fail an audit like that. They reuse passwords, they use short, stupid passwords, just every mistake you can think of. Yeah, well, and especially with something like LastPass, you're like, oh, this is the password I have to type all the time, so I'm going to make it short and easy. I'm like, yeah, but it's the one that accesses everything, so no, don't do that. Yep. I do wonder how the auditing tool works, because short of brute forcing, does that mean LastPass wrote down somewhere how long your password is? And does that mean that the attacker could filter and find all the vaults that were encrypted badly? Could they use this audit tool to know all the ones that were low-hanging fruit? Well, I don't know, Alan, because it's not open source, so I can't see how they do it. But yeah, I did have the same thought when uh, the first time I, I logged into uh, with admin access to a corporate account, I was surprised to see that password strength auditing tool for all your employees. Is like, hmm, okay. Clearly, they're they're working with the raw password at some point. Now, it's possible that the check actually happens like in the client on your own machine and your client reports the results of the audit. But one of the things that it specifically will tell you is users that have reused a password that has been in dumps elsewhere. So those tests are against the actual password, not just like the number of characters in it or what have you. Yeah, and even just the number of characters is... All I was really worried about. So, yeah, that raises some interesting questions about those capabilities. The other thing they were saying is that alerting and logging was enabled during these events, but did not immediately indicate the anomalous behavior that became clearer in retrospect during the investigation. Specifically, the threat actor was able to leverage valid credentials stolen from a senior DevOps engineer to access the shared cloud storage environment, which initially made it very difficult for investigators to differentiate between the threat actor's activities and the ongoing legitimate activities of the DevOps engineer. Especially if they're doing it from his machine with his username and password, how do you tell what was him and what was the threat actor? This basically is, you know, it's, it's the old school sysadmin hunt. You identify the target that has access to the things that you want, and you go after that person at work, at home, wherever you can find them. You look for a way into their life, and then you follow them into your actual target. 
that is exactly what happened here. And we can see the the laser focus on this one DevOps engineer that the attacker knew had what they wanted to get. But I do think it's kind of interesting to note that the one thing that has changed is now it's not actually a sysadmin. It's a DevOps engineer. One of the reasons the sysadmin hunt technique works so well is that despite the fact that most sysadmins are at least a little bit security focused, it's not their prime job. A sysadmin's job is to make sure that all the equipment goes. Now, part of that is security because if the whole thing's compromised, well, then it's not really working and it all comes down on your head because you're the sysadmin and the buck stops there, right? But DevOps folks, like they've got even less ties to the security side of it than a traditional sysadmin does. They've, they've got too many different hats they got to wear. You know, they're already doing dev and they're doing ops, which is arguably sort of kind of what the sysadmin was doing. And there's not necessarily a lot of room left over for InfoSec concerns. And it bothers me that LastPass didn't have a robust InfoSec department making sure that their non-security people weren't making just absolute romper room mistakes like this. Yeah, and especially like, this isn't just any developer, this is one of the people, one of the four key people. So even if you don't have a big security team, it's like, here's the four people we have to worry about the most, they should be at the top of the list, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's like, work from home is one thing, but using your Plex server to do development or something, that's not how that should be happening. Yeah, the InfoSec team should already have been having kittens over that and making absolutely certain that that got fixed before an attack ever happened. I usually feel at least a little bit forgiving of companies that aren't putting the InfoSec team out far enough in front because it can be a pain in the butt. The InfoSec team, their job is not to make your life easier. Their job is to make the data secure. And it can feel like a big cost center doing everything the right way security-wise and having to dot all your I's and cross all your T's and you know making your senior devs or admins or whoever jump through all of the InfoSec team's hoops. It feels like a lot. And if you're a small company, especially, it can feel like too large of a price to pay. But this is LastPass. If they're not InfoSec first, then who's going to be? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send any questions. And as I always say, the shorter the better. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue. 
which is what Francis has done. He says, I have some experience with local DNS for individual clients, but now I want to set up DNS on a cloud server for all my clients to use. I know you guys have talked about DNS a few times, but what I'm hoping you can help with is, one, I believe you've recommended bind. Is that still the case? Two, I need DNS to be very configurable and block different things for different clients. Three, can you get DNS block lists that get updated and pushed into my DNS server without having to update the block list manually? Four, with all this in mind, how difficult would it be to have DNS running in Linode and have it reliable and secure enough for client use? And 4A, I would need multiple servers with a load balancer. What would be your recommended hardware configuration for this? I think I want to tackle the last thing first, actually, because it kind of broke my brain a little bit. Francis says, I would need multiple servers with a load balancer. And Mike, <laughs> I'm like, no, you don't. I mean, this is DNS. You, you do not need multiple servers and a load balancer. Multiple servers are a good idea. That's what the, uh, the primary and secondary configuration in mind is for, to automatically replicate your changes from one node to the next. You do not need a load balancer. That's what the DNS system manages. And the other part about that is DNS is incredibly lightweight compared to actually serving websites or you know, shuffling email around, you know, all those kind of things. You can serve tens of thousands of people off a $5 Linode if all you're doing is DNS calls. Even if you're getting 10,000 DNS queries a second, one server probably can handle that. So yeah, you just want two completely separate servers and you're configuring them as the primary and secondary resolver. So the big thing I want to point out here is I'm fairly certain from the question, they're wanting to set up a recursive resolver for many clients, not host DNS for a specific domain. And so that'll have a different volume, but Almost certainly the ISP provided DNS servers you have, they only have two for the entire ISP with tens of thousands of subscribers. And so your small subset of that is not going to need a bunch of servers and a load balancer for just doing some recursive resolving for a small group of people. So bind is probably, yes, your best bet for that, especially at larger scale when you're trying to do stuff like have the block lists. And Bind can do things like Split Horizon, where you can have different people get different results based on their source IP address. The biggest thing here is you want to be careful not to be running an open resolver on the internet. You don't really want to do exactly what Google does and just all accept DNS queries from anybody and resolve stuff for them. So you have to figure out how you want to authenticate the users that are going to make DNS queries from your servers. And I'm guessing the best way to do that is going to be some kind of VPN. And that'll also let you have different IP blocks for different of your customers and then use those, they're called views in Bind, to apply different block lists to different sets of customers. It's hard to give specific advice on this without knowing a little bit more about the use case, like how are these clients divided up and how many different block lists and, and mm -hmm. what have you. It occurs to me that in a lot of cases, it might be easier and make more sense to run multiple bind instances configured differently rather than trying to deal with a single bind instance with like a million different views. Like if you're going to have a different view for every client, it might be easier to manage just having multiple instances. True. And when I, when I did multiple views for trying to do GeoDNS back in the day, I very quickly ran my bind up to using like a gig of RAM. And that was for authoritative. <laughs> but that was because I had so many views for every different slash 24 that was from a different country or whatever to do the GeoView thing. So yeah, separate binds might make more sense there. And, you know, the nodes are $5, a separate one for every customer is not going to break the bank, really. It'd be good to understand more about what they're trying to do. It sounds like they're trying to make 
Cisco's open DNS thing as a service, right? Where that we're going to filter out bad stuff by by doing your DNS for you. Because mm-hmm. outside of that, I'm not sure why your clients would want you to do their recursive resolving for them. Or, you know, in that case, like why you wouldn't do the recursive resolving within their network, basically. Yeah, one easy way to get things blocked is literally just to use, uh, you know, something like OpenDNS as your forwarder for that server. And things are blocked because you're using a forwarder that already has the things blocked. I do have to question, is it worth trying to maintain your own block list and push separate block lists? Like, I know there's there's a lot of questions here we don't have answered that it, it feels like we can't really answer exactly what Francis is looking for because we're not sure exactly what Francis is looking for. Yeah, but as far as the block list, like I'm sure you can ingest the block list for things like PyHole and turn them into a zone file that Bind would respect and, and be able to return the right thing to block those and have that updated rather than having to do it manually. But I couldn't tell you what sources would be the best for getting those block lists and converting them into the right format. Yeah, I do know that the PyHole stuff, absolutely, you can get those block lists in zone list format. Everybody out there that pushes some kind of RBL or another, there's always a tool to convert that into zone file format if it isn't already there. You can make those those zones that you get out of that only applicable to particular views. So you can do your you know divvying things up by customer you're talking about. Or you could push them to multiple bind instances like I had been talking about, but it just, I'm still not sure what the goal here is. And I'm a little concerned about giving advice that aims somebody in a bad direction because I don't know what they're actually trying to do. And like Jim was saying, for some of those RBLs, you can just set your bind to be a secondary. So rather than you having a copy of it, you're just going to forward to them. But most of them have, well, basically your bind will download a copy and get notified every time they make a change to the RBL. And that will avoid you having to forward request to them all the time. But I mean, the list stays updated in zone format via the zone protocol. But yeah, it depends. You want to only be using block lists for what they're meant for. Like you don't want to just grab a an email spam block list and try to apply it to DNS because it'll have all kinds of weird effects that way. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. You can find me, still on Twitter for the moment, at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.